So uh, Sunday, Sunday evening at our service, I uh, I didn't I didn't make it through my sermon. The sad the the really sad thing is honestly, and this is and it really is sad. I preached like a, an hour and fifteen minutes and got about halfway through. I apologize. I know that's a lot of material, but we're talking about misinformation. <laughs> And misinformation is kind of like this big, like, like it's not just, uh, it's not just like, oh, there's this thing called misinformation. People say wrong things from time to time, and that's it. Like, it's a big deal, right? There, there's a big, a, a big worldwide thing going on right now with this, with misinformation. It's happening. It's actually happening right now with the, with the war in Ukraine. Um, Putin shut down Facebook and Twitter last week or a few days ago in Russia so that so that Russians couldn't get on Facebook and Twitter and hear what was happening in Ukraine outside of Russia. So he didn't want anyone else to have, he wanted to control the narrative. We're going to get to that tonight. Um, he wants to control the narrative and he controls all of the news media in Russia. So he has total control over what Russians are hearing and seeing about what's going on with Ukraine. That's misinformation, right? He's he's sharing different stories, so, and like, and that's not the only thing. That's not the only way that's it's happening all over the place. So it's kind of a hard topic to cover in a short amount of time. So we're gonna we're gonna try to wrap that up this evening. We're gonna try, I'm gonna do my best to uh, to just kind of cruise through this material and 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 wrap up what we didn't get to on Sunday. So on Sunday, I'll do my best to recap quickly. I'm not going to get real deep into it, but we just talked about um, my my Dwayne Wayne glasses. I got to get those because they're awesome. Like, I'm I'm am still. I know. I know people don't agree with me. I'm still 100% convinced. These are amazing. These are legit, legitimately awesome glasses. Like, like I seriously think they're they're super cool. So, yeah, but we talked about you know, my my uh, my attempt in middle school to fit in by pretending to need to wear glasses that had flip up purple lenses. <laughs> it was middle school. We all did things like that in middle school, right? So anyway, um, so I was. I was wearing, you know, I was trying to convince people I needed to wear the glasses, and I was, you know, but I was, I was believing, I was believing all kinds of misinformation, believing lies that, that, you know, wearing glasses could make you fit in, fit in with a group of kids, that, that there was, there was a good reason for me to not fit in, all of those kinds of things. Those, it's, it's all misinformation. And my point was that a very, from a very young age, we're, we're blinded by misinformation, and sometimes we, uh, we put down the misinformation shades, and we look at at everything through in in life through these lenses of misinformation. And if we're being honest, the truth is, we all have different layers and levels of misinformation in our lives that are affecting the way we see the world. We all we're, we all have it. And we went back to Genesis three and talked about how misinformation started in the garden with the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve. How Jesus called Satan the father of lies. That's his native tongue. He's he's a master manipulator. 
He's really good at it. That Satan is the god of this age who has blinded the, the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Satan has blinded minds of people in this world so they can't understand the truth of how God actually works. So we blame God for things that aren't his fault and we don't give God the credit for things that he's done. That we're living in this world that's under the rule of the prince of the air and he's controlling everything. And, and we've just got this, this, this ocean of misinformation going on in our lives um, all around us. And I talked about how ideas become sacred values, that, that ideas are planted, then they're pollinated by community. Then these idea, ideas cause us to lose relationships with people before we embrace the ideology, right? And you've seen this in your life, both in good and bad. Um, and then we start defending the idea, which deeply entrenches us in the idea. Then we start looking at the world through that idea, and that I, then that idea becomes our purpose. We start living our life as though we have to go out and share that, that idea. Well, I, and I, I kind of cover this a little bit, but this is where I, I want to start digging in and, and, uh, and move towards the end here. So, um, by the way, if you're watching live this evening, feel free to drop me a comment and let me know. I'm happy to, happy to interact with people just a little bit this evening. Don't have to just talk all the time. I do that plenty. So, so feel, free to, uh, feel free to send me a, leave a little comment and interact with me some tonight during this live stream. I'm going to open up a, a window here so I can see any comments that might come up in the process. Got a nice big wide monitor so hopefully I can get it so I can see your comments and interactions. Maybe. 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 If I can even find a live video. There it was. Here we go. The time. Shh. So feel free, to, uh, feel free to send me a... All right. I've got a window open. So comment away. I can see, I'll be able to see your comments and, uh, and interact with you. So I started to get into this on Sunday evening, but I, I, uh, I, I cut it there. But where things have really gotten out of whack now is how we've incorporated our politics into our theology. Christians on both sides truly authentically believe that their red or blue way of looking at the world is not only the correct way, but it's also completely supported by Scripture. In fact, we would be able to point to Scriptures and make an argument for our case. And at the same time, we can probably make a case for why the other side is wrong. Instead of seeking to remove the misinformed glasses that we use to see the world, we have instead opted to add the Dwayne Wayne sunglasses to our distorted view. So we're, we're putting layers on top of the way we see things. So whether they're red or blue, so many of us are willfully choosing to distort our perception of the world because we have embraced our form of misinformation as the truth. This is, where, this is where it gets hard and a little bit touchy. We end up being just like the Pharisees were with Jesus. It's just that now in this world, in this realm, some of us are red Pharisees and some are blue. We claim to hold Jesus' teaching, but the truth is we only hold to Jesus' teaching in as much as it lines up with our red or blue thinking. Everything else that doesn't fit up with this way of thinking, that doesn't fit in this filter, gets justified out and justified away. 
But the truth is, freedom only comes by holding to Jesus' teaching. That's the only way freedom comes. Jesus' teaching is a thorough teaching. There's more than enough there for one lifetime. We have to become people who are committed to a wholehearted, holistic devotion, devotion to Jesus' teaching. We have to become people who refuse to see the world as it is presented to us through the devil's misinformed lenses and instead see it only the way God intended us to see it, which is through the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ. At the start of this book, I mentioned how I spent a fair amount of time uh, in both red and blue context. Sorry, the start of this series. This, I'm turning this into a book, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Um, I mentioned how I spent a fair amount of time in both red and blue context. I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio, and that's a very red conservative part of the country, especially where, where I lived. And now well, I've lived here uh, in, in Vancouver for the last 22 years, the outskirts of Portland. So I know my Vancouver friends would hate that, but that's true. We're, we're part of the Portland metro area, which is, which is the legitimate epicenter of, of progressive thought, right? Progressive liberal thought right now. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making any judgments. That's just the truth. That that it is the, it is the, like the epicenter. It's where people are coming because they love that way of thinking and love that lifestyle. So, I've I've lived about equal parts of my life in both contexts. Can I share something with you that I've learned by living in two different contexts? I've had to stop assuming that my point of view is the biblical point of view simply because I'm a Christian and that's what I believe. I know it sounds really simplistic when I say it that way, but so many of us live like that. Now, I hope you're a Christian. I really do hope you're a believer. I hope you have surrendered your life to Christ. But when we become Christians, our minds don't get seared to misinformation. And the, 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 the instant we put our faith in Christ, it's not like our mind just gets seared to misinformation and we no longer receive it. At the same time, there's no matrix neo-upload of truth to our minds. Yes, there are some amazing supernatural things that happen at the moment of faith, and one of those being that God puts His Spirit in our hearts. But why is His Spirit there? His Spirit is there. One of the reasons is to guide us into the truth. Guide us into all the truth. John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. He, the Spirit, guides us into the truth, which means... We have to live lives of submission to that spirit, submitting to the spirit of truth, instead of lives of submission to the spirit of this age, which is how so many of us live. So much conflict has come out of this arrogant assumption that we believe just because we're Christians and we believe something, we're right. We have so much pride and our ridiculously limited perspectives. Take any hot-button topic. Have two Christians sit down who are on opposing sides of the issue and see if both of them don't truly believe that their point of view is the 
biblical point of view. They both think that way. They think different things and they've come to different conclusions based on their study of Scripture. But simply because I'm a Christian and I hold that point of view, simply because I know a lot of other Christians who hold that point of view, and simply because I can point to a lot of Christian leaders who also hold that point of view, does not make that the correct point of view. As Christians, though, we've been doing this for millennia. We've been doing this for thousands of years. A couple of weeks ago, our kids were learning about Galileo and homeschool. In case you're not familiar with the story, on top of the studies of speed, velocity, gravity, inertia, and so on, he also used the telescope to make scientific observations about the sun. After his studies, yeah, he was looking at the sun through a telescope. <laughs> After his studies, he became a champion of Copernicus's heliocentrism theory, which said that the earth revolved around the sun. Seems silly for us to even think that, that other theories existed, but the problem for Copernicus, or sorry, the problem for Galileo was that the Catholic Church taught something different. They taught that the earth was the center of the universe because mankind lived on the earth, and mankind is the crown and centerpiece of all God's creation. So the Catholic Church accused Galileo of heresy for contradicting the church's teachings. Now, Galileo didn't help himself out much because he wrote fictional pieces he called dialogues where he positioned himself as the wise and right one and Simplicio, representing the Pope or the Catholic Church, as dogmatic and foolish. So he would write these things and publish them. The Pope ordered that his book be banned and they put Galileo on trial. Well, since Galileo was old and sick, he publicly agreed with the church, but was forced to live under house arrest until his death in 1642. 1642. 1,642 was the year. Do you know the year when the Catholic Church finally lifted the ban on Galileo's teaching? 1822 almost 200 years later, 180 years later. And it wasn't until 1992, which, by the way, was three years after Galileo's namesake spacecraft had launched into, the, into, into space. It wasn't until 1992 that the Vatican formally and publicly cleared Galileo of any wrongdoing. 350 years later. In 2000, the Pope issued an apology for many of the wrongdoings of the Catholic Church, including the trial of Galileo. So Galileo was right, and the Catholic Church was wrong. Now, I'm not picking on Catholics here. I have Catholic friends, I have Catholic family members. I'm not picking on Catholics. This is just the story. These are the facts of the story. Galileo was right, the Catholic Church was wrong, and what did the Church do? What did the church do in response to being confronted with a different form of information that happened to be correct? They condemned the truth. 
They condemned the truth. <laughs> they thought they knew. They thought that their belief about the earth being the center of the universe was the absolute version of the truth, the absolute correct truth. And so they ended up condemning the truth because their teaching was the most important teaching. The truth is, their belief that the universe revolved around the earth was misinformation. It wasn't scriptural. It wasn't. It's a nice connection to say that because mankind is on the earth, that, that the earth, everything revolves around the earth, but there's nothing in scripture that teaches that everything revolves around the earth. They drew those conclusions on their own and then taught them as though they were scriptural. Right? I can see why they came to that conclusion, but just because an argument sounds good doesn't make it true. You can technically, you can do this, look it up on Google if you want, you can technically argue that 1 plus 1 does not equal 2. For instance, if you're using a base 2 number system, you can prove that there's... <laughs> You can prove that, that 1 plus 1 doesn't equal 2 if you're using a base, number, uh, base 2 number system, which also proves that there's no extreme that a math student will go to when they're procrastinating studying for their final exam. It was the conclusion the church had come to. This was their truth, and the church was willing to strong-arm Galileo into submission and then keep him on house arrest for the rest of his life, simply to preserve their authority on the matter. But the thing about truth is it eventually wins out. Right? The Catholic Church was eventually proved wrong and they ended up having to apologize for it. And I think the Pope, you know, did as good as he can with with something like that. I mean, the Pope wasn't to blame for the situation. He made an apology for it. That's that's a good thing to do. But whether the person holding the misinformation is an uninformed peasant or the Pope himself, the truth will eventually win the day. Yes, there will be seasons where authoritative figures abuse their power in the name of their misinformation. It has happened throughout all of human history. It's happening to this day. It's been happening in recent history. It will continue to happen in near future history. But the truth eventually comes to the light. And when it does, whether we're in its light or not, we have to come out into the light with it. Otherwise, we're just dogmatics. It's not just the Catholics who have done this, by the way. Protestants did it. As new theologies emerged after Luther's Reformation, cities and countries would adopt a theology and then either run dissenters out of town or burn them at the stake. We saw early on in this series how preachers in the Civil War did this very thing. And preachers are doing the same thing today. In the world we live in right now, preachers are doing the exact same thing. Preaching misinformation as though it is absolute truth. That's why, as Christ followers, our devotion has to be to the scriptures. Not to a theology, not to a denomination, or a pastor's teaching. Your devotion, as someone who's listening to my teaching right now, should not be to my theology, should not be to the denomination of our church, and it should not be to my teaching. Yes, I believe that we should listen to our pastors. I believe that we should follow and submit to the authority of the shepherds and leaders God places over our lives. 
I know that's controversial. We don't like to do that anymore, but we should do that because that's what Scripture teaches. But we don't need to do so blindly. And if the leader you're submitting to can't deal with the occasional scriptural challenge, you may need to think about how you can lovingly help that leader be less dogmatic. Notice I did not say leave. Because scripture does not talk about leaving leaders in that situation. Stepping on some toes. Alright, the truth is, the truth is true whether we agree with it or not. Let me wrap this section up. Still got some more to cover. Whether we know it or not, whether we want it to be true or not, the truth is true. It's always true. Our job is to submit to the truth. And that's because the truth is a part of who God is. God built this world on the foundations of his truth. Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no darkness in him. He is only light. No matter how hard it may be, no matter how many preconceived notions we may have to lay down, no matter how many layers of sunglasses, of shade we've put over our sight that we may have to take off, we have to be devoted to the truth as God established it. Now, if you haven't figured this out, I kind of like to think of myself as an author. I know that surprises you. I tend to be quite verbose and... uh, I, I, I think, you know, I write. I write a lot. I'll say I'm, a, I'm an author. I write. I've, I've written a book. I wrote a novel called The Christmas Setup. You can find it on Amazon if you want. But for years and years now, I've been studying story. What is story? What makes a good story? How do stories work? Research has shown that the brain of the story recipient mirrors the neural activity of the storyteller when telling a story. According to Kindle Haven, The four main components of a narrative are universal, which means, and they studied stories from around the world throughout history, and they found these four components in those stories. What are they? Number one, there has to be a character, a protagonist, that we are drawn to, who has a goal that was birthed out of a relatable motive. So there's a protagonist who wants something and that we connect to, right? Those are the key, key components that the protagonist wants something and we relate to this protagonist. Point two, or, or, or component two, the protagonist has to face obstacles that keep them from reaching the goal and that entail the real true possibility of failure. They have to have a mountain to climb. The protagonist has to have a mountain to climb. Component three, the protagonist needs to struggle and hopefully rely on other characters along the way. And fourth, once the protagonist reaches the obstacles, overcomes the obstacles and reaches the goal, they enter into a new reality called new stasis. One of the things that makes a character character likable is that they usually have a misbelief that they ascribe to, which is usually there because of something tragic in their backstory. Now, a mountain of research has been done in story over the past 10 or more years. One of the things that has been discovered is how story has the ability to mobilize people to act. Stories are powerful and they have a way of moving people into action. By the way, one of those things in number two, the obstacles, the protagonist faces obstacles that keep them from reaching the goal. One of the the most common obstacles is 
a villain, right? Most, many, not all, but many good stories have villains in them that the, that the protagonist has to overcome. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2014, there was a movie that came out called God's Not Dead. I didn't go to the theater to watch it, but I had been aware of the movie because of its Christian production. But there was something else about this movie that came as a surprise to me. This movie asked people to pull out their cell phones. It's 2014. Not very many people had these smartphones back then. But, but um, the movie asked people to pull out their, their cell phones and text the word, the phrase, God's not dead, to ten friends. The first time this happened to me, I thought someone was inviting me to go see this movie with them. But when I figured out what was happening, I think my wife and I both had to Google what was going on to figure out what was happening. And then it kept happening. I have to confess, I was slightly annoyed because these people were sending me this text. And I already knew that God wasn't dead because I'm a pastor. So, so like, don't waste your text on me. Get up some courage and send it to someone in your contacts who doesn't believe that God is alive. Like, don't use the safety of me and my phone number to make you feel like you did something that you were challenged to do. You didn't do it by sending it to me. That was a cheat. You cheated. Sorry, that's a, a little bit of an overreaction. But it proved something to me, that's, and it's proved that stories have power. When somebody is moved by a story, they can also be moved to act. They can also be moved into action. People were moved by the story of that movie, God's Not Dead, and the producers of that movie were able to leverage their emotional response into an action. So what we don't realize, we've moved on, by the way, from, from truth into story or narrative, and, and that's an important, an important part of misinformation, too. We don't realize how much story is being used to manipulate you and I on a daily basis. Right now, this concept of meta is getting pretty trendy, right? The meta, Facebook changed their name to meta. They're talking about the metaverse. Um, and it's just this idea, you know, this, this kind of overarching or all-encompassing, you know, thing is what, is what meta is. But there's, there's something also that's been around for a while called the meta-narrative. Scripture has a true meta-narrative. But according to the Oxford Dictionary, meta-narrative is an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. An overarching interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern, a paradigm, right? A, a paradigm, which is what we're talking about with these glasses, a paradigm, which is a way of seeing the world, an overarching account of events and circumstances that are happening in life that provide a pattern or a paradigm or a structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. Wikipedia says, in communication and strategic communication, a master narrative or meta-narrative is a trans-historical narrative that is deeply embedded in a particular culture. Trans-historical, it, it overarches history. It's deeply embedded in a particular culture. A master narrative is, therefore, a particular type of narrative which is defined as a coherent system of interrelated and sequentially organized stories 
that share a common rhetorical desire to resolve a conflict by establishing audience expectations according to the known trajectories of its literary and rhetorical form. Meta narrative. All right, so meta narratives are those overarching stories that shape the way that we see the world and add meaning to our existence and, and, and they shape how we approach life. It's a story. A meta narrative is a story that, that, that's trans historical. It goes over, over history. But while our understanding of meta narratives is just now starting to hit a tipping point, meta narratives, sorry, meta narratives have been in use for decades. I remember hearing about the narrative while I was listening to conservative talk radio years ago. Now I gave up listening to such things because of how cynical and negative it made me. If you listen to conservative talk radio, any kind of talk radio, maybe other than sports talk radio, it's probably making you cynical and negative and bitter. And I would strongly encourage you to consider lightening up a little bit on how much you take into that stuff. Just give it a, give it a thought, think about it. But I remember the frustration coming over the airwaves about the conflict between that side's view of the truth, that the power, view of the truth, the, the power that the meta-narrative had to influence so many people. They were frustrated that the narrative had so much influence in people's lives. Now, I'm not picking on any one side for using the meta-narrative as a tactic, because politically speaking, both sides, red and blue, use narratives, use the meta-narrative to get their constituents to do what they want on a consistent basis. In fact, it seems that nearly everything said in the public eye and every vote has become another tool for communicating that narrative. And they do this for one reason. It works. It's effective. Right? It gets us to do something. All you have to do is look at any election in the last 30 years, probably even before that, but that's how, how, about as far back as I can remember, and you'll see this, this practice at work. They start talking about you. They start talking about you and your life, and they talk about how the current administration is ruining your life. It's destroying your life. The current administration doesn't care at all about you. They're, just, they're ruining your world. They, then they'll talk about, about, they'll talk about the life they can create for you. They'll, they'll create this, this utopia, right? They'll just create this, this mecca, this vision of, of the world they can create for you. If only you will vote them in the, into office and vote out that villain, that villain who is destroying you and destroying your life and destroying the world as we know it, Right? Then the obstacle in the story is the election. And we've got this election coming up. And, and, and the election is this thing we have to come together and we have to overcome. We have to overcome all of the obstacles along the way so that we can emerge victorious on the other side of this election. And anything along the way that threatens our ability to win the election, it also has to be overcome. So you, the protagonist in the story, have to ally, ally yourself. You have to become allies with other characters. 
and 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 other other protagonists in their own story. You have to you have to align yourself with them and, and other nonprofit political organizations in order to achieve this goal. You have to sign up and give your life so that you can help the political organizations accomplish this victory. And in the end, if you're successful. If we're successful together, if we can if we can work together for a better America, well, you're going to attain that new stasis. You're going to get that new normal that you always longed for. We will arrive together at Utopia. Unless your party loses, then this whole story becomes a tragedy. Haven't you heard that? And I, I hope I did an okay job of being neutral in the way I told that story because both sides do that. That is, that is the tactic they use in elections and we don't realize we're being manipulated for their purposes. Sorry, a little bit excited worked up about that. All right, so, but, but here's the other thing that I didn't get into yet. Narratives need villains. Narratives need villains. They need bad guys, right? It's so much easier to rally a group of people against a bad guy. Like, if you can put a face to the evil you're trying to defeat, then you can, I mean, it's so easy to hate the bad guy. It's like in the episode of The Office called The Merger, where Michael's trying to get two, the two branches of Dunder Mifflin that have merged to come together and form the new Scranton branch. And he's done all of these crazy things to try to get them to merge and come together and make a good cohesive unit, a cohesive team. But he succeeds only by inadvertently making himself the villain with all of those stupid stunts that he pulled to try to accomplish his goal. And it's a lot, it's a lot easier to get people you're trying to control to come together if they have a face to put on their dartboard. Right, if I had a dartboard behind me, we could put a face on it. I don't know whose face. Michael Scott's, I guess. And let's just assume that that's the worst thing people have done to faces of political candidates. We don't need to go down that road to see what people have actually done. It's a lot easier when we make some assumptions. Life can be a lot easier when we make some assumptions. Don't need to think about what people have done. But during the election cycle, the villains are the leaders of the opposing political party. During the off years, the villains are anyone who's trying to push the agenda of the opposing party forward or trying to push back the agenda of my party. Whoever has control over that narrative usually wins. The side that tells the best story and gets more of the country to buy into their story usually wins those elections. Villains, narratives. But there's another part of narrative battles that's important to note, and I know it's like... You really thought you were going to get all of this into one sermon? You must have been insane. I tend, I tend to live a little bit on the crazy side when it comes to preaching, I know. Another part of narratives that's important to note is each side tends to tell a story that elicits a specific and motivating emotional response. Each side tends to tell a story. Now, it's going to sound like I'm picking... On the sides here, I'm not. This, this, these are just the tactics that both sides used. I'm not being negative about either side. These are just the commonly used tactics by both sides, okay? So I'm not being, I'm not being negative. Each side tends to tell a story that elicits a specific and motivational, emotional 
response. The right or the red storytelling machine tends to use a fear-based narrative. If our leader isn't elected, we'll be destroyed by North Korea. Uh-oh, our leader wasn't elected, so you better stockpile gold and MREs to survive the coming apocalypse. If our leader isn't elected, you're, you're going to need a bunker, right? That's the tactic of the right. I know it well because I've spent too much time listening to the right uh, preach those tactics. I'm sorry if you're you know, big into that. I just, I've just come out of that, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of over that idea. But On the flip side, the left tends to use a shame-based narrative. And again, I'm not being negative here. I'm just telling you how, how it tends to work. The left tends to use a shame-based narrative. From our morally superior position, we can see all the ways you have fallen short. Oh, you disagree with our moral position? Shame on you! Insert name calling here. <laughs> right? And that's just kind of that's just kind of the persona that comes just you know it's shame. And that there's an article on currentaffairs.org if you want to look that up as well as uh, another. I can. Get, but Tristan Harris on that same podcast argues the use of fear and shame are a race to the bottom of the brainstem which is the part of us that is most likely to react first and think second. It's not just a tactic used by political leaders, it's used by tech giants as well, and it's used because it works. The problem is, let's try to cruise here. The problem is, since we insisted on being able to decide for ourselves what is good and evil back in the garden when we rebelled against God, we also took the power to create villains into our puny little paws at the same time. The serpent, the liar-in-chief, was able to convince us to turn the one and only good thing in all of creation into a villain. That's what the serpent was able to do. The serpent was able to convince us to take God, this being who had made an entire world and a paradise for us to enjoy, and gave us authority over that world to represent him in that world, this, this, this villain, the only true villain, was able to get us to take God, our benevolent, our benevolent creator, and turn him into an evil dictator. That's the tactic. And because we've taken this villain-making power now into our own hands, instead of being united against the one true villain, that slithering serpent... We're turning other characters on this journey into villains who were never meant to be villains. Yes, I know there are some truly awful people who have done horrendous things throughout history. But they're not, in the end, the ultimate villain. The ultimate villain is the enemy, the snake, the serpent, who deceives and misinforms us and manipulates us for his purposes of sticking it to God. And what's making it worse is in our society... We've accepted this concept of my truth. What's true for me might be true for you, and I'm entitled to create my own reality. Which now means that instead of a few meta-narratives that are driving us insane because they're opposed to one another, which is happening, by the way, that's, there's a lot of meta-narratives driving us insane. But now there are literally millions of mini-meta-narratives. I don't even know if that can be a thing. 
Like it would just be a narrative, except that, you know, like it's my life, and this this mini meta narrative is like the overarching story of my life, and you know, I've decided this is this is the grand truth of my life. So it's kind of a mini meta narrative, if you know what I mean. And anyone who does not embrace and empower the journey of the protagonist in their own mini meta narrative pursuit, and their in the pursuit of their ultimate nirvana and mecca. Well, they become a villain, which takes us all the way back to the garden. What happened when Adam and Eve realized that they were naked? God called out to them and says, where are you? To which Adam replies, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam responds, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In other words, Adam's saying, Not my fault, God. It's Eve's fault. It's that woman you put here with me. If you had never created her, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. God turns to Eve. What is this you have done, Eve? Following suit, following in Adam's footsteps, she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's his fault. Well, sure, it's true. I ate the fruit, but, 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 but the, the serpent was the one that, that deceived me. And Adam is saying, well, yeah, it's true. I ate the fruit too, but, but she's the one that followed the serpent's advice. It's not my fault. It's, it's their fault. All the serpent could do was try to convince Eve to eat the fruit. That's all the serpent can do. The serpent did not and could not force Eve to eat the fruit. All the serpent can do is tempt the disobedience. All the serpent can do was tempt Eve to disobey. She had to decide to disobey the one command God had given them. When you and I mess up, what's our first instinct? Isn't our first instinct the same to find someone else to blame? It's like that episode of Friends when Joey needs a new fridge because his fridge is broken. So he pushes Ross into the broken fridge and claims that Ross broke it. And Ross opens it up and says, this has been broken for a while. When things go wrong, our first instinct is to find someone we can blame or some excuse we can make to let ourselves off the hook. But we know the truth, right? We know what really happened. We were late for work because we hit the snooze button too many times. We didn't read the book because we'd rather watch reruns of The Office. We didn't come to church because we just felt like sleeping in. But that's not usually the answer we give. We're late for work because of traffic. We didn't read the book because our boss gave us this huge project and, and it took all of our extra time. And, and we didn't come to church because, well, we just weren't feeling that well. In the end, as much as we'd like to blame the man or someone else, the opposing political party or religion or the church or the IRS, the truth is we're just as responsible for the creation of misinformation as anyone else because we too are fallen. We create misinformation when we want to shift the focus away from ourselves. We rebelled in the garden along with Adam and Eve and it's in our DNA to protect and elevate ourselves at the expense of others. As long as we get what we want in the end, well, the end justifies the means, right? So if I have to hurt people to get where I want, if we have to hurt people to get the leaders we want, 
to get the power and control and money we want, then so be it. Because everyone will be better off if people who agree with my point of view are in charge. We all have a choice to make. Are we going to keep putting on our Dwayne Wayne glasses and try to create a false reality where we will hopefully be accepted by the masses, even if it's inconsistent with the truth? Or are we going to be committed to something higher, the true meta-narrative? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are, st who are still living, only some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's the meta-narrative that we have to live our lives by. Now, I know I'm running long again, but to talk about misinformation and not talk about social media would be like talking about an elephant and not talking about peanuts, I guess. It'd be like writing about the atomic bomb and not bringing up the Manhattan Project. Social media and misinformation go hand in hand. They're like two little schoolgirls holding hands, skipping down a country lane, silently scheming to destroy the other because of something a friend whispered in their ear about the other. Social media creates what we call a feedback loop. I'm not going to get into what feedback is. If you want to, you can go look that up on the internet. But thanks to Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, the Facebook whistleblower. Now, let me go back just a little bit. Feedback loops happen with information, right? I guess I, I, guess I have to explain feedback or the, or the whole thing's not going to make sense. So I spent a lot of my life as a worship pastor I've, and I've uh, been interested in sound systems for as long as I can remember. I've got a lot of recording gear set up in my office to this day. If you've ever worked with an event, you know, a, a PA system at an event, you know what feedback is. It's that squeal that you get when the sound guy's messing with the soundboard during the pastor's sermon, which usually happens when the sound guy's bored, so they start tweaking knobs. But there is a little bit of science behind it. What happens is you take a microphone. I've got a speaker right here, so if I'm pointing here, that's why. You take a microphone and just put a microphone and a speaker in the room. The microphone starts to pick up some kind of signal. It could be music or ambient noise in the room. The mic takes that sound and pumps it out to the speaker, which is amplified. Then the microphone picks up the sound of that microphone and loops it back into the speaker. 
and it starts happening faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And once it's going really fast, you get a feedback loop and you start to hear that squeal, which isn't just annoying, but it can damage your hearing and the speakers in the process. This usually happens when the sound system is turned up loud, making it susceptible to feedback, which means the loop gets louder and louder with each cycle because the input itself is getting louder and louder. It's a real pain in the ear. The same thing happens with information. Replace the speaker with culture, and you and I are the mi microphones. By culture, I mean both culture at large and specific subcultures that you're most connected to. Media, social media, conversations you have with others, your sphere of influence. Someone says something you agree with and you share it with others. Maybe you share it in person, but then on social media, or my, more likely vice versa, you hit that share or retweet button without even thinking about it. Others take that information and rebroadcast it back into your subculture. The idea grows with intensity, getting louder and louder with each share, right? We create these feedback loops where we're hearing more and more of the same thing. Well, thanks to Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, we now know that Facebook changed its algorithm in 2018 to reward and prioritize, prioritize engagement, they said. They want people to stay on their platform as long as possible, and if people are engaged with the content on the platform, they're going to keep scrolling and trolling Facebook and Twitter and all those things, which is where the problems really become apparent. If you're scrolling Facebook and all you see are people sharing articles you've already read, well, you'll lose interest. So Facebook knows what it has to do is it has to show you more and more extreme content in the same vein as what you're, what you're saying and reading so that you can stay on their site for longer. Let's use an example. There have been many studies about coffee. Some say that they're good, that coffee's good for you. Others say it's not so good. Well, let's say you click on an article that says coffee's bad for you. You read it and determine that there's nothing new there, so you go back to scrolling. If you see another article that says the same thing, coffee is bad for you, you're going to skip it because you just read it. Which means if I'm writing an article about coffee being bad for you, and I want you to read it, and you've already read an article about coffee being bad for you, I have to make the headline more extreme because Facebook rewards engagement, which means the only way for, for my article to get seen is if you click on it and you share it. So I have to go from coffee's bad to you to coffee is giving you cancer. And now that I've got your attention, I'm able to bait you into clicking on my link and reading my article. The thing is, the progression has to keep escalating to keep me clicking. If the escalation stops at cancer, once I've read about coffee causing cancer, I'll stop clicking. So the headlines might proceed along these lines. Coffee's killing you. Coffee's responsible for thousands of murders every year. Coffee is everything that is wrong with the world. I'm likely to find myself stuck in an escalating feedback loop of articles being fed to me by the algorithm and people who are dependent on the algorithm for their clicks, which result in advertising dollars for Facebook. Unfortunately, the loop doesn't stop there. It keeps escalating. And because websites are desperate for traffic, they have to keep escalating their content to keep up with the escalation. 
When the traffic starts to dry up around coffee, they have to change their approach to people who drink coffee are everything that's wrong with the world. People that drink coffee are responsible for thousands of murders every single year. People who drink coffee hate baby koala bears. And the feedback loop escalates until I'm not only, as a coffee drinker, a vigilante now against coffee, but I become a vigilante against anyone who drinks coffee. And it's all in the name of keeping me on the platform just a little bit longer to make a little bit more in advertising dollars and snatch up a little bit more of my personal information. One of the accounts that was released by Halgen was an internal study done by Facebook on a fictitious account with the name Carol Smith. This account was created and liked only a few Facebook pages. Within one week, the account had been radicalized feeding Carol Smith information from extremist groups that had been deemed by the FBI to be a threat. Within a week, she's getting this extreme content. An article on this study on NBC News stated, the body of research consistently found Facebook pushed some users into rabbit holes, increasingly narrow echo chambers where violent conspiracy theories thrived. People radicalized through these rabbit holes make up a small slice of total users, but at a Facebook scale, that can mean millions of individuals. An echo chamber is another way of saying a feedback loop. It's a loop of information that gets stronger and stronger the more you interact with it. And because of how the algorithm algorithm works, it feeds you more and more of the content that you interact with and more and more extreme content of the content that you interact with. And since social media also makes use of our brain's dopamine reward circuit, we're actually getting addicted to the misinformation. We're getting addicted to our feedback loops. And as with most addicts, eventually the high that we get in the present is rarely sufficient for the long haul. Eventually we need a bigger hit, a juicier piece of misinformation to give us that feeling. If we're not careful, we're going to follow in the same footsteps as many addicts. And you've probably seen it. Someone in your life gets addicted to heroin or meth, opioids. And eventually they're stealing from the people they love in order to get their next high. As I shared at the beginning of the series, it's been sad to see how many families have been broken up over the last few years because of our current cultural climate. So many churches have been split over politics in recent years. Eventually, the people we love either become enablers on our journey to misinformation addiction or they become the collateral damage. We have to be very careful and very selective when it comes to the glasses that we choose to use to see the world around us. We're all wearing some kind of glasses. We all see, interact with, and evaluate the world based on a set of beliefs we've either assumed or acquired along the way. Regardless of their accuracy, we make judgments based on those beliefs that have real-world, lifelong consequences. Damage has been done over the past couple years that even if relationships are able to be restored, trust will be difficult for decades to come. Maybe it's time to take off the Dwayne Wayne glasses. 
like I have written here behind me, our agreement for this, our, our agreement, agreement number two, is I will seek to see what I can't currently see. I will seek, I will intentionally seek to see what I can't currently see. As a fallen individual, I recognize my tendency to be susceptible to mistruths. As someone who has been set free from mistruths by Christ, I am committed to a lifelong pursuit of God's truth in all of life. When that truth lines up with my preconceived notions of right and wrong, I will not use that as an excuse to stop seeking. When that truth confronts my pre-existing beliefs, I will seek guidance from others more knowledgeable than myself. If I discover that I am truly wrong, I will adapt my beliefs to the truth and resist the temptation to manipulate the truth to fit into my narrative. My devotion is not to the meta-narrative meta of my party or of society. My devotion is to the true meta-narrative of Scripture, God's story that he has been writing for all of human history. I will intentionally seek to see what I don't currently see. All right. That is my not-so-brief attempt to boil down misinformation and give us a biblical perspective on it and call us to something higher. I hope that helps. I hope that helps you kind of frame what misinformation is and, and be on the lookout for how it's affecting your life and your conversations, your relationships, and your families. And I hope we can become peacemakers that, that uh, don't combat people who have believed in misinformation, but as we said on Sunday evening, that we exercise extreme compassion, that we show compassion because we're all misinformed on some, le some level. We don't want to be condescending with our version of information because most people aren't intentionally misinforming themselves. Some people were raised with misinformation. Some people live in communities with lots of misinformation. Some people are victims of social media algorithms feeding them mis misinformation. And if we're being honest, we're all misinformed on some level. So we want to be compassionate and, and love people unconditionally in in the misinformation because they probably love us in the middle of our misinformation. Let me pray for us and we're done. Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you that you've given us keys to unlock the way the world works. Help us to look at the world through your lenses of scripture and truth and to see it for what it really is. Father, empower us to be peacemakers who go out and make peace who sow in peace so that we can reap a harvest of righteousness. Help us to bring people together who have been driven apart over the last couple of years. Help us to start to make right everything that's been made wrong, all the wrongs that have been exacerbated. And help us to be agents of peace and ministers of reconciliation. And we pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray, Father, that you bring peace to Ukraine, that you stop this, this needless war, this needless conflict, this needless loss of life that you intervene in a way that only you can. We pray, Father, that you would send peacemakers to the conversation that can help bring about a peaceful resolution and that you would stop this atrocity that's happening and tearing apart lives and families in so many ways. We pray, Father, you protect those who are still in, in harm's way in Ukraine and that you, that you protect, protect the people along the way and protect us as we move forward as, as the species of humanity into this year and the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.